Welcome to today's Association of the U.S. Army Thought Leaders Podcast. This is Colonel Retired Dan Roper, AUSA's Director of National Security Studies. We're fortunate to be joined by one of the Army's foremost experts on Joint All-Domain Command and Control, JADC-2, Colonel Dre Abadi. He's a PhD Signal Corps officer who's serving as the Solutions Architect for Networks, Artificial Intelligence, and Cyber for JADC-2 and Project Convergence for U.S. Army Futures Command. Colonel Abadi, welcome to Thought Leaders. We're looking forward to hearing from you today in order to better understand the many initiatives, both internal and external to DOD, related to JADC-2 and the potential impact on U.S. military operations, particularly, of course, with respect to the U.S. Army. Now, approved by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in May of this year, JADC-2s received a lot of attention in the defense media. But before we dive down and get into specifics of the Army implications, it'd be helpful for you to tell us what exactly JADC-2 is since it's variously been described by different joint and OSD officials as a concept, it's been described as a strategy, and it's been described as a principle. Can you help us better understand what it really is? In its simplest sense, it's the future. It's our leadership recognizing that transition from an industrial age force to an information age force. And some of the documents you mentioned, they've been pretty clear that it's going to be both material and non-material. It's going to have to be more than any single platform or any single service. And I think those are the things that are really the most important piece as people try to get their head around it. As we lean towards things and everybody wants to build the next new thing, I think we lose sight of the transformational change that JADC2 will bring in terms of how we organize for combat and how we fight as a joint force. And if it's anything, it's going to be the unifier to bring a lot of different stakeholders together. That starts with the joint staff and the separate services. But I think true unity is going to come from a number of the other enablers, whether they be certain agencies or activities that support our defense ecosystem. You somewhat anticipated my next question, which was, how is JADC2 going to relate to some of the other high-level initiatives like the joint warfighting concept and the supporting concepts for fires, contested logistics, and information advantage? You know, I think it's going to anchor those documents in the operational problems that we're trying to solve. There's two dynamics going on, specifically when it comes to concepts. And what we're finding is the enemy has a vote. We all understand that. And so it's to some degree, how do we need to shape the way we fight in the future to account for what we see certain adversaries doing in their own space? But the second piece is taking that thought and really starting to understand emerging technologies. And when I say emerging technologies, I generally in this space focus on artificial intelligence, robotics, and autonomy. And there's a number of individuals out there that really see those three as the enablers for what the future fight will look like. The joint warfighting concept is really the preeminent document that's going to bring this way forward because that document is going to talk about the concept required capabilities that are necessary for us to fight in that manner. And then it's going to start to really help us understand the different changes that are going to have to occur. And the goodness to all of this, at least from my limited perspective, is the senior leaders that I've had the opportunity to engage with are excited about what the future holds, but they're also not holding on to any preconceived assumptions of the past. And that bright look, that acceptance to the necessity of change is really, I think, going to be the secret for the whole Department of Defense going forward. And that's the secret that'll make a concept actually make the evolution towards a reality and towards doctrine. That's encouraging to hear because I think we've all lived through some previous transformational modernization efforts that did not do that. So the fact that the senior leaders are going in with their eyes wide open to the risk of that is going to be very important and pay off down the road. 
Now, while JADC2 is clearly joint by nature, what are the specific characteristics and capabilities that the Army's seeking to do with JADC2, and what will it look like? I think I'd group the Army characteristics into three themes, if you will. The first is, how do we enable joint combined overmatch for a more lethal force through JADC2? Second, how do we address the demands of the joint operating environment? Currently, that's defined as 2040. And more important within that environment, the C2 integration with our mission partners. And that's beyond just joint partners. That gets into coalition partners, interagency, et cetera. And then I think the third one that doesn't get talked about a lot, but again, if we're talking about seizing opportunities, the Army realizes that we need to generate favorable procurement outcomes. And so there's going to be broader changes necessary for us to achieve JADC2. And that's really well with some of the department's designs on process reform, et cetera. And so the Army thinks that's important that we pay attention to favorable procurement outcomes. So when I talk about a more lethal force, we start with lethality. But for us, it's how will we achieve this idea of convergence? And in the Army, we generally talk about bringing together all sensors. Once a target or a threat is identified, then how do we get to the actual best shooter to engage that threat? And then finally, making sure that it goes through the appropriate command and control node. And all that has to happen at speed. For lethality, we also look at scalability. We're getting to the point with modernization, as I mentioned before, you know, going from an industrial age force to an information age force, where pretty much every troop and every platform is a network sensor. And so this idea of a joint kill web is really quite dense. And how do we account for that scale that the Army is going to require for us to propagate JADC2 across the force? You know, it needs to be expeditionary. It's got to be responsive at scale where we can get the right capabilities at the right place, and they have to be there on time. Everybody talks about speed. You know, how do we see, understand, decide, and act first? I think the JADC2 strategy was a little more dense than just basically saying, how do I sense, make sense, and act? Finally, for the Army, we're starting to, to seek out some of that standardization. And so we have to get to joint architectures. And those architectures are going to be driven by common data standards and common interfaces. And really, that's some of the early work that's going on with JADC2. But when we talk about Army characteristics that get into that future operating environment of 2040 and how do we integrate command and control with mission partners, we need things to be survivable. There needs to be not just a resilient, defensible technology in the field when it's deployed, let's say, in conflict or some level of competition or crisis, but that also get that protected development throughout the industrial base. And we have to pay attention to how we do protection of these technologies as they're under development and as we're working to integrate them. For the Army, mobility is absolutely critical. So how do we support command and control on the move? How do we do that with dispersed and decentralized formations? And then I think another piece when we talk about the future operating environment, at least for the Army, is how do the solutions, specifically material solutions, how are they tailorable? How do they enable agility and integration to complement what we call multi-domain formations? And that's really important because we need combatant commanders to be able to organize for purpose. And so when the Army provides those forces, that commander in whatever region they're operating needs to be able to take those assets, those capabilities, and organize them as they see fit with their understanding of the mission. And then the last piece was just talking about procurement outcomes. You know, you hear a lot about the different opinions of what the budget is now, what it will be, et cetera. But I think what we're finding, especially for the Army, with the great collaboration we're having with the other services, is you start to see some level of commonality where we can come together and start to reach consensus, which means potentially partnering for material solutions. And when you partner for a material solution, you can probably drive down cost as well as starting to work integration challenges from the very beginning. 
the Army has a history of that with the Marine Corps. That's both being land forces. But there's nothing to say that that can't extend really to all those services. We're also concerned about affordability. I mean, this is where, again, it gets back to that concept of scale. So as the Joint Force is examining and exploring a specific material solution, then we need to make sure that that solution doesn't become cost prohibitive as each service adopts it at scale. So, you know, the Army, we're incredibly concerned about scale because we're talking about troops and platforms at a number and a quantity that's generally higher than our other service peers. And then the last thing I think I'd talk about, you know, in terms of being a little more favorable in procurement outcomes is these technologies need to be intuitive. They need to have simple interfaces that minimize the training requirement that allow us to accelerate mastery at the individual level. But more importantly, those user interfaces are equally familiar, whether you're a soldier, a sailor, an airman, a Marine. We need to have those abilities because that will both drive down the cost of training, but it'll drastically reduce some of the current dependencies we have on contracted support out in the field. And so therefore, if we capitalize on the generation, which some people are calling you know, digitally native, we'll have the opportunity to start presenting things that are a little more intuitive and therefore will be quickly accepted and more importantly, mastered and integrated in some ways that we probably can't even understand. That's the Army characteristics where it's a blend of how we fight and win with lethality. It's a blend of recognizing the need to partner with that future operating environment. And then it gets into the business of how the Army runs and how do we procure things and how can we coming together with the joint teammates make that a more favorable outcome. I didn't realize JADC2 touched practically everything that the military does. And you just described some of the transformational changes that will be required. Are there any other game-changing transformational changes that will be required in areas like data sharing, the network, artificial intelligence, or force structure for JADC2 to realize its potential? So I'm of the opinion that the singular problem we're all faced with is we define some very exquisite kill chains as requirements, as we did some material development, and therefore these exquisite kill chains limited a specific shooter to a specific sensor, and generally by the way we organized a specific command and control node. As the different services have started to see that modernization is bringing information age technologies, the desire to connect really everything is across the board. We're all trying to do that same thing, but we're all limited in the fact that we did not define requirements for those things to be built in that manner. So it's almost, it's almost re-engineering, whether it be different fifth-gen aircraft attempting to communicate or whether it be a fifth-gen aircraft and a land component trying to communicate in a manner that just wasn't defined at the genesis of the requirements process. But as we're all pursuing that singular goal, we're realizing that it's going to be cost prohibitive to, number one, re-engineer everything, but really, number two, to allow everything to connect to everything. So the game-changing technologies I anticipate is going to be based off of this foundation of cloud technologies and really the pursuit of common data standards, or at least some level of data formats that have the fungibility to be able to be used for multiple purposes rather than being defined for a single thing and employed in that manner. I think as we employ artificial intelligence, what most people like to talk about is artificial intelligence to accelerate things, to find the enemy faster, to find the best shooter, and accelerate the ability to engage threats. But there's going to be a business side of AI. When I say business, it's going to be the artificial intelligence that keeps the networks running, that does the dynamic routing, you know, as we're in these denied degraded environments that we anticipate. 
It's going to be the artificial intelligence that knows where all the data is, these catalogs of data that would just be burdensome to any commander or really any individual. But by understanding a commander's decision points and the individual data points that feed those decisions, that artificial intelligence will be able to go out and find out if that data is available. And then if it is available, how do you get it back into the commander's decision cycle? And so there's going to be a side of artificial intelligence that if it's done well, will be transparent. But it'll be that ability for a commander at the point of need to try to make a decision and the machines can operate at machine speed to inform that decision in the optimal way forward. And I really am excited about the potential of that because as we seek the ability to fight at machine speed, but still rely on the commander's intuition and commander's decision-making abilities, that's man-machine teaming probably at its optimal point. And to me, that's going to be the difference. And based off of that difference, we'll allow the joint staff to start to look at different ways for us to organize and different ways for us to present that force where our nation needs to be called. Because what will happen is the technologies will provide what I would call optionality. The technologies will put a commander in need with options, options to use different types of shooters from different services, or options to get data points that weren't necessarily resident to that command node in order to broaden his or her understanding of the battle space, and then more importantly, to enhance the decisions they make. To me, that'll be the game changer. Certainly sounds like that would be a game changer if we can pull all that together. Now, we've heard the Chief of Staff of the Army, General McConville, talk about combining range, speed, and convergence to achieve decision dominance and attain overmatch. So what role does JADC2 play in making this a reality? I think the first part when we talk about speed, that's where JADC2 is going to drive the charge for us operating at machine speed. You know, we often talk about in our artificial intelligence conversations, this concern about, you know, is the man in the loop? Is the man on the loop? Did the man start the loop, et cetera? And these are very important discussions for us to have. But really, we haven't even built a loop yet in most cases. And so the ability for JADC2 to deliver technical solutions that allow these machines to operate seamlessly and at machine speed will show us what the optimum is in terms of fast but will still allow our leadership, our professional values to dictate where that man in the loop is and ensure that we maintain the ability to fight and win, but to fight and win with the values that we have as a profession. When we get to range, range is going to be a combination of things. In some ways, speed will create range because a commander operating at speed can shape the geography of the battlefield. But it's also going to be about the ability to have access to multiple capabilities, multiple shooters, which will change the range equation for most commanders as they historically have had whatever organic capability at their disposal, and that's what they were limited to. And it really created this conundrum in terms of position and time and space. Another aspect for the range that we're finding that I think is really important is the use of artificial intelligence and unmanned, unmanned teaming. So the ability to deploy autonomous sensors, sensors that can collaborate and start to extend a commander's battle space in terms of what he can see. And by doing that, we're changing the risk calculus for that commander. You know, when scouts would go out, it'd always be about how far forward before they were at the threat of the enemy. Now that we have these unmanned capabilities, the risk changes and that commander can deploy those even more forward to kind of extend his ability to see the battle space and then potentially be a little more proactive versus reactive, which will go back and contribute to that speed equation. When we bring all this together, 
you know, the Army's calling that convergence. It's one of the three tenets of multi-domain operations. And we see that convergence as delivering information advantage. And then once you have information advantage, it will yield what the chief is talking about in terms of decision dominance. And it'll allow the commanders, not just the Army, but joint force commanders to have the decision dominance to fight and win. And in all honesty, potentially to compete and deter conflict as necessary. Thanks for that explanation. That's probably the clearest explanation I've heard of this since these terms started to be introduced. It's reassuring to sense that this has got some substance to it. Now, while the JADC2 strategy itself is classified, do you know if the joint staff of the Army plan to publish an unclassified product with which to more readily engage industry, academia, and the scientific communities? Yeah, my understanding is they are not just to fully bring in that defense ecosystem to contribute to how we solve these operational problems, but it's also to really widen the information sharing to our coalition partners. Fortunately, it's widely understood that we don't fight alone and generally we don't fight at home. And therefore, having our closest allies, whether they be fighting beside us or whether they be serving as a host nation, will be absolutely critical. It is my understanding that different forms of that strategy and some of the supporting documents are being written in a manner to ensure widest release to get everybody involved. And so we solve this as a team. We'll look forward to the release of those products because you can sense there's a real appetite for all those communities to find out more about this and figure out their role and their contribution toward this collaborative process that you've described. This has been a fantastic discussion. It really has shed some light and provides some of the connective tissue that sometimes is absent when one reads an article or looks at a briefing or a set of presentations on this. So we really do appreciate you sharing your time with us. Anything else we should have discussed that would be helpful to our audience that you'd like to share with them at this time? What I would caution the audience to is this idea of a single material solution. You know, we have a number of historical examples of acquisition programs that clearly did not end well, but often it's because they were looking for that one size fits all, that one single silver bullet to solve some problem. Sometimes they were ahead of the technology, and then sometimes they unfortunately were pursuing problems that at least at this point in time physics can't solve. Again, like the strategy says, it's going to be material, but it's also going to be non-material. And when we're having conversations, we need to be less concerned about a product and more concerned about the problems we're solving and how we solve them. And when we allow ourselves to look past just a singular thing or a material solution, and we expand that thought to how both people and talent, as well as potential processes and changes in terms of how we organize, could bring similar solutions. And that's really what I think is important. And we benefit a great deal with the existing collaboration and the energy that at least I've seen every service bring to this. And I think as long as we keep that wide-eyed look and we focus on the problems we're trying to solve, I think we're going to be in really good shape. You know, I'd ask the audience for a little patience because unfortunately these things don't necessarily happen fast. But man, I see a bunch of senior leaders with their feet on the pedal and they're pushing progress. And it's really inspiring. Your point on solving the problems as opposed to pushing a solution that used to work is absolutely spot on, and it's got so much applicability to not only the warfighting problems, but as you talked a little bit about earlier, the acquisition, you know, how do we get things in the first place, and how are we open enough to actually solve the problem and not get stuck with old tools for new tasks? I'd like to say thanks again to our guest, Colonel Dre Abadi, the Solutions Architect for Networks, Artificial Intelligence and Cyber, the JADC2 and Project Convergence, 
U.S. Army Futures Command, where all kinds of great stuff is going on and really helping the Army, our joint partners, and our allies think through and then act on coming up with some very innovative approaches toward preparing for the future. Thanks for giving us an increased appreciation for the challenges associated with both the development and implementation of this critical capability and opportunities that it presents the U.S. Army with its joint and allied partners. It's pretty clear that attainment of a robust JADC2 capability can significantly change how the Army equips its soldiers, what it equips them with, and how they train, operate, and sustain to achieve decision dominance overmatch on an all-domain battlefield. Thank you very much. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army Day. Hua.